Welcome to the Veterinary Pulse podcast. My name is Jordan Benchia. I'm the executive director of the VIN Foundation. Veterinary Pulse is the heartbeat of the profession. Join us as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics from student debt to mental health and share stories. Stories connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible through individual donors like yourself and our technology partnership with VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. Thank you for being here. This episode, we're having a discussion with Dr. Carl Jandry, the UC Davis Veterinary School Associate Dean of Students and Programs. We share a glimpse into a day of his life, the ways he keeps balanced, how UC Davis is pivoting amidst a pandemic, and their effort to keep students educated and engaged. Thank you for listening. Hi, Carl. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I like to start each of these podcasts and sort of ask, how were you first introduced to the VIN Foundation? That's really hard to answer because I've known VIN for a long time. In fact, I knew Paul from 1993 when I first came to Davis. And um, I, I knew the company and I knew what VIN was all about. And then, you know, the VIN Foundation blossomed from the initial foundations of the Veterinary Information Network. And I kind of don't really, really know when I first knew about the foundation. Um, but it, to me, it's just part of the same extension of the services that VIN provides to its veterinarians. Yeah, Dr. Paul Payan, uh, founder, co-founder of Veterinary, Vin, Veterinary Information Network, VIN, and one of the VIN Foundation board members. And yeah, I think that probably makes sense since the VIN Foundation was born out of an idea from VIN. They are separate entities, but same values and core mission to support veterinary colleagues. When did you first realize you wanted to be a veterinarian? Was there an aha moment or was it more gradual for you? I think that uh, my my earliest memories of childhood when things were sort of not pushed upon me, but sort of suggested. It was, um, I remember first grade where my, my parents, I'm a first generation student, so my parents never went to college. I am the youngest of three kids. And I was in first grade and my mom had like one of those parent teacher conferences and came home and was discussing with my dad and I remember me and they're like, Mrs. Mrs. Carr thinks that Carl needs to go to college and we need to do as much as we can to get him to college. I'm like, well, I don't know what that means. I, I'm seven years old. Mrs. Molnar never said that anything when I was six, but Mrs. Carr said it when I was seven. Okay, fine. So I have to go to college is what my parents are sort of saying. And I think that it was always on their radar. They were always going to do as much as they can to ensure that my brother and my sister and I had everything that they didn't have and potentially more. Um, they were very, very giving that way. Not educated, like I said, they graduated high school but never went to further degrees beyond that. Um, but they were super smart and super commonsensical. So they basically were like, we're just gonna make sure you're getting to college. So they did what they could to save. They gave us all the opportunities. And part of all of that, I think, was that the town we lived in and the people we hung out with 4-H was a big thing, and my brother was in 4-H, and I was going to join 4-H and had to come up with some kind of project. Um, my colleagues in my class had a sheep farm, and um, that was sort of like, well, I'll have sheep. Why not? My dad was like, yeah, we'll have sheep. My mom was like, nothing in the house. I don't want animals in the house, but anything outside is good. <clears throat> so my first sort of revelation I think when I was going to be a vet is I was eight we got uh I got a I got a lamb uh her name was Blatz she was the sort of the the golden retriever of sheep she followed me everywhere because of course she was the only she was the only lamb in the entire barn so I was it and I was her world so she followed me everywhere it was kind of like having a dog and I was in 4-H. She was my project. I was going to do it right. I had to learn as much as I can. And I was like, well, I could do this. Taking care of animals is pretty fun. So I was like, I think about that time. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a vet. Makes sense. Mrs. Carr told me I have to go to college. My parents agreed with her. I got this U. And now I'm like, 
I think being in a vet is going to be a cool thing. And to, to that point, I never actually remember ever going to a vet, seeing a vet, having a vet come to the property to look at our animals. But it was just, I guess, the thing that you do when you're a kid, you're like, if I'm taking care of this animal, I got to do it right. Who does it right? Veterinarians. So I think that's just the way I just became interested in being a veterinarian and it never changed. Really from that time I said I was going to be a vet, I've always had my eye on that prize. It's not very an exciting story, but I think that it was pivotal when I was seven or eight. That's a great story. I, those, those experiences that you have as children with pets make a huge impact for some people and clearly this did for you. <laughs> people are named after beers, which is really weird. I don't know why a seven or eight year old kid is naming all the sheep after beers, but that's <laughs> and you just never wavered from that. It was just sort of you decided at that point when you're eight years old and you stuck with it. Sure. Yeah, I did. Uh, we had a small little gentleman's farm. We had chickens, ducks, rabbits, sheep, of course. Eventually we got pigs. And it was all in the name of like 4-H, loving animals, doing right by animals. It was also sort of farm to fork. We were actually eating the chickens, the chicken eggs, the pigs were slaughtered at market. I mean, that was all part of the living on the farm when my family moved out of the suburbs. So um, it was sort of a lifestyle, but the animals were pretty integral to all of that. It was actually, I think, for all of our me, my brother, and my sister, Although my sister wasn't into the animals as much, my brother definitely was. Um, it was kind of the thing we did. It was our chores. It was our, it was sort of how we defined ourselves amongst our family. But also what a great way to connect you to our food system. So many people these days are just so so much further removed from that. And when you have that as a young age, you you get a much better grasp on what it actually means, how that process works, and a lot of responsibility. Yeah, both the responsibility of caring for those animals in the best way possible so that they remain healthy, so that they can make you healthy later on when they serve their purpose. Mm -hmm. um, but also, uh, it, was a, it was a community building thing because I can tell you we had far more eggs than we ever needed. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> we built our community because people were always stopping by to get eggs. And my grandmother and my great aunt would always come over when we were culling the laying herd, the laying chickens. Um, we would take care of all of the the respectful slaughtering and processing of the birds. I remember with working with my grandmother and my great aunt who were both from Germany and they did this when they were a child. So it just seemed like normal to pass it down the generations to uh, learn how to pluck feathers and inspect the insides of these chickens as that's all being uh, taken care of. So it's, it was a really bizarro Childhood, I would have to say that I don't think everyone has experienced that kind of stuff, but that that experience for sure um, teaches you a lot about animal husbandry, animal care, and definitely about animal advocacy because they were integral to our family's health. Um, I mean, we also had a garden and we also took care of making sure the vegetables were grown and my parents were sort of organic gardeners at the time because it was the 70s and that was totally cool. And um, we would have a bumper crop of green beans. And next thing you know, my mom's canning green beans for the winter because Ohio gets cold and you have no fresh fruits. And I thought, oh, what the heck? Why don't you just go to the store and buy a can of beans? Why do you have to can your own beans? And I was just thinking to myself, why would anyone ever do that? Why would anyone grow their own stuff and process it and say for later, what a, what a pain. That's a lot of trouble. And then of course, who does that now? Like if I see rotting fruit on a tree in my neighborhood, I'm like, Hey, can I pick your fruit? Cause I need to make raspberry jam or peach jelly or something. Cause um, I can't let it go to waste. And now I'm that person. I'm the one who's canning fresh fruits and vegetables. <laughs> for later. I, I, I do similar things. So I, I completely understand. <laughs> I guess I am a product of my environment. So in your current role, you're the UC Davis Veterinary School of Medicine Associate Dean of Admissions and Student Programs. Did I get that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's and one so of my how jobs. that's one of your jobs. So how can you share with us a little bit about your path from, you know, you're eight and you decide yeah, I like this. I'm going to be a vet and I'm supposed to go to college and that would check that box. And 
therefore this is clearly going to be my path. Can you give us a little insight into your story as to how you go from that to where you are now? Sure. How much time do you have? <laughs> However much you want to share. <laughs> well, let's see. Northeast Ohio, age eight, thinking about being a vet. Um, you need to find veterinary experiences. And at that time, like I said, I never had met a vet before. Um, eventually, I would have met vets. There was one in our town. There was one in the tech next town over. And there was actually one who was a board certified specialist. He was an ophthalmologist and he lived down the street from us and he went to our church. So um, Chuck Parsha was what I would call my mentor, who was that go-to guy for anything that I needed to know or think about veterinary medicine and um, said, you know, I think I was 12. I'm like, hey, Dr. Parshall, I really want to be a vet. And um, when, when do you have a job for me? I'd, I'd love to come and work with you. He's like, you're only 12. Call me, call me back in a couple of years. So, of course, I kept doing all my 4-H stuff and doing as much as I can, staying close to as much veterinary medicine as I could, but you know, I'm 12, so it's kind of back burner stuff. Um, but then I think he hired me at 14 to start like cleaning the clinic and mowing the lawn of the clinic and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was about 16 when I actually was given animal responsibilities. So everything in, in his clinic, I think I got to do from bookkeeping to being the receptionist, to being the janitor, to being the technician, to being his surgical assistant. Like he just trained me all the time. And I worked with him from, I was 14, but really 16 animal handling until I left Ohio when I graduated vet school. I worked with him every minute I could, weekends, holidays. And he was always welcoming to say, yeah, if, you, if you're here and you want to work, I'll put you to work. So I really, um, I left Ohio when I was 25 and graduated Ohio State's vet school and came to California. Um, so he was my, he was my go-to guy. Like he was the veterinarian by which I rated all of the veterinarians. So he was, he was it. Um, of course he's a board certified specialist. He was a Davis grad actually. Um, and he was one of the founders of the ophthalmology college. So he had a lot of experience and a lot of, um, worldly, uh, wisdom to give me from across the entire country, from general practice to specialty medicine, to army and to all these other sort of facets. He also gave me a lot of connections to other people in the veterinary industry to gain more experiences in other areas. He was like, if you're going to go to vet school, you shouldn't just work for a veterinary ophthalmologist. You should actually explore other things because you may not want to be a veterinary ophthalmologist. You might want to do racetrack medicine or or other. So I'm like, okay, yeah. So he hooked me up with other places to get other experiences. So um, I was very, always very animal centric and any experience that revolved around animals, I was like, for sure, I'm going, I'll, I'll check it out. So um, he probably helped me more than anybody with the sort of professional part of wanting to go to vet school. Of course, my parents were certainly supportive 100% of the time. They never wanted me to do anything that they did. They thought their work was boring and I would be bored with it. They wanted me to explore and do what I wanted to do. And they were like, go do it. So um, having like parents who are super supportive, having a mentor who's super excited to share his passion about the profession with you, I was sort of sitting pretty to make it really easy to get to Ohio State for my undergrad degree, uh, which was actually in poultry science. That's maybe another long story. Um, but then I got into vet school after three years of undergrad and then uh, finished my bachelor's while I was in vet school so that I finished both degrees, my bachelor's in poultry science and my veterinary degree in June of 92. Um, that's when I also turned 25, and that's when I also moved to California for my internship at Los Angeles, the West LA Animal Hospital, which at that time was the premier and the biggest and the best and the brandest newest VCA hospital. So um, that was at the transition from the West LA Hospital to being a VCA practice. And what a great experience that was for me because they had had an internship for quite some time, and they were adjusting to now being a VCA clinic. Um, our class was really tight. Uh, we had seven interns, which was super fun to grab people from all over the country and now hear different stories and different experiences and different schooling techniques and, and educational modes. It was really kind of eye-opening because I, was, I would have to say that I was a smart undergrad and I knew how to really focus and do well in undergrad, but I didn't really know how to focus and study in vet school. So vet school was a big slap in the face 
I was not a stellar student as far as grades concerned. Um, but I think I started improving, quote unquote, my grades if I was going to be graded in my clinical year and in my internship because my learning curve was just astronomical and everything started to fall into place where before it didn't seem to be integrated very well uh, in my brain. And then everything started, everything started falling into place um, the moment I got to actually apply the stuff that I was learning. Um, so that internship was kind of the pivotal part of my career because my brain, I think, was finally gelling about being a veterinarian. And also my personal life was now my own because I was away from my family. I was out of my state. I was an Ohioan, right? So I'm now in California and um, have time in my life both being sort of now independent and being a professional and having degrees and being done with school. So that was kind of also a awkward stage for me too, because I was like, huh, I think I'm gay actually. I think I like this guy I'm working with who's one of my technicians. And funny enough, it was like, yeah, that's the guy I'm still with. So um, of course now the, 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 the narrative switches because at the time I was gonna come back to Ohio do an opto residency and take over my boss's ophthalmology practice in my hometown, right? This is what you do. Right. You have everything planned. Oh yeah. Oh, of course I have. Everything is always planned in my world. <laughs> but here's a big um, divergence in the past is I met Michael and he wanted to go to vet school and he applied to vet school and got into vet school while I was an intern. So the following year I did not get an opto residency and Michael got into vet school at Davis. So the, now my, now my story turns into, a tag along story because now I'm now following Michael through his path and through his career. Um, cause he's in vet school here for four years. So I'm in Davis for four years in the process. I go from uh, my internship to a general practice job in the Sacramento suburbs, which was actually really rewarding cause I got so much surgical experience. It was utterly amazing, but it didn't really fulfill me professionally because I was used to heavy duty cases, really complicated, really sick. And I was actually growing a love for emergency and critical care during my internship. Even though I still love ophthalmology, this intensity of an internship and the cases and the clientele who's willing to push the boundaries of medicine with you um, was really fantastic. So I missed that in my general practice year. So I was torn between ophthalmology and emergency critical care at this time. And Michael's still in school, so he's studying, and I'm trying to study to be a specialist. And I'm not sure which specialty I really want, which is challenging. Um, I think a lot of my students feel the same way because everything they find fascinating, they find fascinating, and they're, they pivot all the time as to what they think is best. Um, and I continually still do that, and I still think um, that's an okay thing to do. But I eventually landed on emergency critical care and um, found Steve Haskins here at UC Davis as my mentor to establish uh, what was at the time called a non-traditional emergency critical care residency. So it was done as a private practice residency where at the time there were only about 60 or 80 veterinary emergency critical care specialists. And to grow the college, they needed more people and they had this alternate pathway for residency training. So between a pet care, special, pet care veterinary hospital in Santa Rosa and Steve Haskins at the university here in Davis, we were able to build this non-traditional pathway to an emergency critical care residency. So I became a resident and I was biding my time between Davis and Santa Rosa, which was actually quite fun because Michael was still here studying to be a vet student uh, and to get his degree, which he did in 97. And I finished my residency in 97, 98. So again, I have to follow him because he, I, I'm a vet, so I'm pretty flexible. Um, he's a graduating vet and he's got an internship which actually took us to Philadelphia. He was an intern at University of Pennsylvania and I went to set up an overnight emergency business in a surgeon's hospital who had overnight care, but never overnight veterinarians. So I helped to set up her 24 hour emergency service in a private practice in Philly while Michael went to do his internship. Then the next year, we love Philly so much. He was like, okay, I'm, I want to do uh, medicine, but um, he applied for medicine residency at Phil in University of Pennsylvania in Philly as his only choice because we like Philly so much. 
and I could I was planning to stay in Philly as well because it was a great great quality of life. We really liked the city. The second year, um, he didn't match, and I noticed that they had a job available at the emergency room at UPenn, and I was like, oh, that'd be super cool to try out academic medicine as a path because I set up this emergency business and it was fine. But I was like, what else could be, what else could I do in the veterinary profession? I've never dabbled in academics because um, my my private practice residency really was much more private practice and I just had cameo appearances at the university. I never really felt like I was an academic. So I, my second year in Philly, um, Michael got a job in private practice outside the city and I got a job at Penn being a lecturer in emergency critical care. So then I was absorbed in a very powerful group of people with lots of energy. I mean, this is the premier, largest, probably the busiest at that time, emergency critical care academic program um, because of the inner city caseload is amazing. So it was really pretty cool to now flex my other side of my brain, my, my, my academic brain, and start focusing a little bit more on teaching instead of just taking care of animals and teaching the clients. I was now teaching vet students other residents, learning from people still, and it was super energizing. So I probably have always had that gene to explore and discover and question, but this made it really clear to me that this was probably a good place where I would like to land. Of course, it's a partnership and we always are compromising and Michael's now applying for oncology residencies. And um, the following year, he gets an onco residency back in Davis. <laughs> Wait, that wasn't part of your plan. <laughs> that wasn't part of my plan either. So, I mean, I had a plan. I was going to specialize sooner or later, and I was now taking my boards and hopefully passing my boards. But um, now Michael's still in his training phase. I'm like, fine, fine. Let's just go back to Davis. And it was, um, of course, they they wanted me back with open arms because they wanted a veterinarian to actually staff and run their after-hour service. So um, he got the residency and the hospital was hot after me to be that person to basically stack, staff their emergency room. Uh, so I did that for two years running. I worked four nights a week uh, for two years straight and made sure that the emergency overnight service here at Davis was as good and as strong as it could be, not just for the hospital, but also for the referring vets in the area. And that was 1999 uh, when we came back. So it's now 2020, uh, and there's a lot that's happened here in Davis. I arrived back, but man, that's a whole lifetime, it seems. Um, of course, because Michael did his first residency in Medonk, and then he did his second residency in Radonk, and was hired on as faculty, and I was already here as faculty, it just seemed normal just to stick around and really work hard and do what we'd like to do which is super easy because everyone here that we work with and we're still in Davis, we love it. Like we work a lot, we work hard, but we're both energized. We're both super fulfilled professionally and personally. We have great teams of people. We have great students. We have great colleagues we work with. It's, I don't know if I can say, I feel like a pig in shit if that's allowed to say on the radio or in a podcast, but, um, I actually, I do feel like I've hit the jackpot. Like this is an excellent position for me, for my partner, for our life. Um, we really dig what we do. And the 20 years or so that we've been here has just been a growth experience all the way around from clinics to learning how to do clinical research. Because I never expected to be an academic. I never really explored research and I don't really know how to do it well. But while I'm here, I finished a master's degree in advanced clinical training so that I can learn some epidemiology, some statistics, study diet, grant writing, all those kind of things to do really good clinical research. Everyone around is so welcoming. We ask questions. We have we build teams. We collaborate and we answer questions that haven't been answered before. We discover new things. We try to push the envelope and try to advance veterinary medicine and then sometimes we advance human medicine as well so it's just been this cohesion of all sorts of fun things that are going on all at the same time that just made it the perfect place for both of us so um we're here and we're loving it like we honestly i go home if he's home first 
he's on the computer, on the couch, working still. I, I can guarantee it. If I get home first, I'm probably not going to open my computer. I'll probably start cooking dinner, canning peaches or something. You never know. But um, we work hard and we work long hours, um, but we really enjoy it. And when some students are like, tell me about what's it like to be an academic? I'm like, whoa, I, I can tell you what it's like, but I don't know if this is for you because some people would say, well, why don't you do this, that, or the other thing? I'm like, I don't have time to do those things because I'm having so much fun doing the other stuff because I don't leave work when I, I don't leave work at work. I leave work wherever I am. Like it just follows me. So it's, it's not necessarily what everyone wants to do with their professional career, but for both Michael and I, it's a sweet spot. We've really hit the jackpot. It is really wonderful when you truly love what you do. I feel the same way. I phenomenally love, love, love my job. And I feel so, so grateful for it. And to be able to do something that you love is just such a gift. And it's, I, I, it's not for everybody. You know, what, what each of us think is great for our, ourselves is not for everybody. How wonderful for both of you that you have found this and this path has taken you here to Davis where you are and that you have this opportunity to continue to expand and learn and grow, right? So often people get into a position and they find that they hit a ceiling um, and that those growth opportunities aren't there, right? And to be able to be in a situation, even specifically an academic one, and to be able to have those opportunities is, is wonderful. I wonder if it's actually more likely in an academic setting to be able to be super flexible and explore. Because I, if I, if I look back to my boss, my veterinary mentor, Dr. Parshall, and I say, I would want to do what he does. Yes, fascinating work, loved it. But would I do it for forty years? Would I be that type to be engaged and enthused and excited every day? for 40 years doing the same thing? Personally, probably not. I Now looking back before, that's what I was going to do because that's what I think people have in their mind when they go to vet school. You set up shop and you are that shop for the rest of your life and you retire from it or sell it when you're really, really, really old and done. Really, really, uh, really old. <laughs> I know. I mean, what in when I was growing up, veterinarians were retiring quote unquote, retiring when they're 65, 75, 80, like they were in it for the long haul. But if, if I envision myself, if I graduated at 25 and I sold my business at 75 and I did the same thing for 50 years, I probably would go crazy. And I don't know, cause I haven't explored as much in private practice. So I don't know if there's as much um, opportunity to be as creative. Um, if you're just doing the same sort of clinical work all the time. Yes, clinical work advances. Yes, you can help advance everything when you grab case data, unless you become like a practice manager or practice owner. I think there's not a lot of flexibility in the things that would make me enthusiastic, where the academic setting, for sure, for me, every, every, every time I turn the corner, I'm having like this, are you kidding me moment? We're doing what now? How is that working? Who's doing what? What kind of tools did you just bring to the school that we're now going to use and advance this kind of technique? I'm like, wow, this is just boggles my mind. And then I learn about it and I employ it in my daily work. And I don't know if there would be as much of that creativity in private practice. So, I mean, I stumbled upon academics. That was not ever in my mind, even when I graduated veterinary school. I never expected to be in academia, uh, let alone being an administrator in academia. That was also not on the list of things that was going to happen, but you know, it does. So I've just basically capitalized on a lot of different opportunities because I think that here uh, we have flexibility to do amazing things. We really can do amazing things and it's supported. I think part of that is you've mentioned a couple of times you had a clear plan and, and oh, yeah. part of that is, I think part of that is being open to the opportunities when they arise so that you're not so set in your plan that you could recognize those as opportunities. And this is the case both personally and professionally, right? And so the ability to be able to recognize those opportunities and then the courage and the courage to, 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 
explore them, right? And right. decide whether they're right for you or not, right? And if you if you had stayed in Penn at Penn and that would have been an amazing career in a lot of different ways, right? And then sure. through your, you know, experience with Michael and, and and joining him back in Davis, that opened up a whole other world that you never could have imagined when you were at Penn. And at the same time, phenomenal opportunities by being open to look at that as an opportunity, right? And so often we get really closed in our mind that, oh, no, no, it can't be that because I have this plan here and it's got to be this. But really, if we're willing to take down those shutters a little bit and see what's out there, there might be great things beyond what we're so set in our ways about. Yeah, that's for sure. So open eyes is really kind of the way to be when it comes to being a professional because- you know, your professional degree is your professional degree. It doesn't mandate that you have to do any particular aspect of the profession. And um, part of the uh, capitalizing on all those opportunities is also having the support network, both from your sort of boss or say the organizational structure of your business, as well as at home, like making sure that it's the right thing for your family, your partner, and everyone else that is impacted by it. Why not? It seems like a plan is a good thing to have. Don't get me wrong. I'm 100% a planner. Sometimes I enjoy the planning part much more than the execution part. But um, if you don't op- take those opportunities, it seems like you've, you've missed out on a whole heck of a lot of excellent that you may never not have known about. And what's the worst case scenario? Okay, you try it out. You flub it up or it flubs you up. You just default back to where you were. You're still a veterinarian. You still have a fantastic degree. You still were in a great position. We're still highly needed. There's no veterinarians that are at losses for jobs right now. My students graduate with many, many different offers. They get their pick of their choices. They command a quite a good salary leaving veterinary school. And um, it's kind of a it's kind of a market right now where veterinarians are in charge of their future. I don't think that's ever changed to tell you the truth. And it's probably only going to get better. Yeah. And that opportunity or the willingness to fail by looking at opportunities is so important. Uh, Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx, uh, has said that when she was a kid, her father used to go around the table and say, what did you fail at today? (laughs) And that, and that taught her that it was okay to fail. And that's sort of how she started this you know, multi-billion dollar company was learning like it's okay to fail and to not be scared of that. And it's so often that we are scared of that. For sure. And it's funny that you mentioned failure because um, last, not last year, maybe two years ago at the white coat ceremony for the class of 2022, um, I actually talked about a success and failure in my little commentary to them because what happens is that you can be successful for sure, but you actually should reset your mind to say, say it's not success or failure, it's success or learning. Because when you approach failure, and I think we all know this, we remember our quote unquote failures, we remember our things that didn't make us so proud. Like we, we remember those more poignantly than we remember our true successes because for whatever reason, they just stick in our mind because they were awkward. But um, there was a quote, I forget who said it, but um, you either, you either succeed or you learn. There's no such thing as failure. It sounds like a Winston Churchill quote, but I'm not sure who said it. That's a very true. And, and one that's extremely beneficial, I think, for everybody, especially veterinary students as as they're going through veterinary school. And all of us, even in our day-to-day life, personally and professionally, we are consistently failing and hopefully trying again, right? Oh, yeah. It totally was Winston Churchill. Here it is. Success is final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. There you go. So you mentioned that you've been at Davis now for 20 years. And can you tell us a little bit about how you spend your days now and what your role looks like? Ah, That's awesome because I never, like I said, I never really imagined being in academics, let alone being doing clinical research and then let alone becoming the director of continuing education for three or four years. And then now I'm the associate dean of admissions student programs. Like none of those were on my list of things I was planning to do but the opportunities show up. So 
every time something else happens, my job reconfigures itself into different proportions of my time directed towards different things. Like now that I spend much more time being an academic administrator, I spend less time in the clinic and less time teaching. So some things have to give because I can't do all of it all the time. So um, how does my day run now? Um, typically, well, let's talk about a normal day pre-pandemic. Um, I would get up at 5 to 5.30. I'd go to the gym because that was the only time I think I ever had to myself. And I would wrap up the gym, get home and shower, and be at, on campus by 7.00. Um, so somewhere between 7 and 7.15, I arrived to campus. I, when I'm on clinics, I would be uh, getting into the emergency room or the ICU to help with the transition from the overnight staff to the daytime staff, see what's in the emergency room, see what's transferring to other services, see what's in the ICU, make sure they're all under control, learn about them, understand what happened overnight, consult with veterinarians that are primarily in charge of those patients, and then let the day take it where it needed to take. So usually the day in either ER or ICU ends around, for us, if we start at 7.30, ends probably around 6 to 7 o'clock. And um, then I would make sure the transition from daytime to nighttime went well, make sure everyone's under control, make sure my residents, my interns, my students, my colleagues, everyone's comfortable. And then I would bug out. Um, when I'm on emergency, I'm still on a pager. I would get called if my patients in the hospital need me or need an adjustment to their therapy based on changes. And if I'm on ICU, I'm also on call with my resident for anything that needs ICU care or oversight. So when I'm on clinics, I always am on. My phone never gets shut off. Um, but when I go home, 6 or 7 o'clock, I try to leave work at work if I can. And that's where I would sit down to actually focus on um, actually spending as much time as I needed to create a relatively elaborate meal. Um, I love to eat. I love good wine. I love myself a good meal with a nice glass of wine that's perfectly balanced and paired. I love that. So I would actually spend as much time as I can, sometimes two or three hours to prepare a meal and eat it and relax and enjoy. I mean, my brain separates from work that way. And um, then if I need to, I'll go back to my computer for an hour or two at the end of the night to check on emails, people, whatever needs to be done. And then I'll go to bed, hopefully around 10 o'clock. That's my typical pre-pandemic life. Um, if I'm not on clinics, I would probably do this very similar thing. Um, I'm pretty regimented about getting up early. I get to the gym. I come to the office instead of the hospital. And then I would take care of all the things that I need to do in the office. Um, and my my, my team that I work with has a, a lot of hands in a lot of different areas. So keeping on track of all of those things that revolve around our extracurricular student programming things. Um, I usually spend a lot of time on emails and phone calls and meetings to make sure that we're meeting our goals and planning the next great thing for our students. Um, generally in the office, I still leave around six o'clock to tell you the truth. If I come in at seven, seven thirty, I'm still leaving at six. Um, cause I need a, I, I need that amount of time to get the stuff done. I need to get done, but then I go home and I'll do a nice dinner again. That's kind of my normal day. And of those days, well, that was pre pandemic. So I was going to say what, what would be your favorite part of your day in, but now everything's changed cause we're in current pandemic. So how has that shifted things for you? Um, I sleep a little bit longer. My gym's closed. So I just do like stretching and floor work at home. Um, so I probably get up around six to six 30. I'm now in the office closer to eight. Um, and then I leave the office between five and six, something like that. And there's only been three days this entire pandemic that I haven't come into my office, including the weekends, because stuff still needs to get done. We've been impacted to an extent that is relatively unimaginable um, because you never know what you need to do until it happens. But um, to retool the curriculum, the clinics, the programming, the pipeline and pathway programs we're trying to do to encourage veterinary, pre-veterinary students to become veterinary students and veterinarians, all that stuff um, we had set and nicely planned, but then when things get upended because of the pandemic, social distancing and restrictions on gathering, 
Um, seems like I've been spending more time this summer really, really doing a, a lot more planning and some executing of those plans. Um, of course, Zoom is now part of our life. We've spent many more hours on Zoom, and it's not just during regular office hours now. It's trying to connect with friends and family at Zoom at night and also with some of my students and some mentoring on the weekend. So there's quite a bit of um, expansion, I would say, of the workload. So I distribute it a little bit into the weekends as well into the evenings these days. So that's been a little bit of a, an adjustment. We're still working really hard. In fact, I have a feeling that I'm working a lot more um, because it's always at your fingertips, right? You can always pop on Zoom at any time. And because you haven't seen anybody, because you're kind of keeping your life into your little bubble, um, you're really craving to see people, even if it's on Zoom from eight to nine o'clock at night. So um, it seems like my work is stretched more than the, the sort of just justified hours that I had before, say seven to seven. Now it seems to have expanded to any time. But I still try to get good sleep. And in fact, I think I'm getting at least one more hour of sleep at night for the last five months, which is pretty nice, I guess. So we're starting a new veterinary school year within the last couple of weeks, right? How does how is UC Davis pivoting in the midst of all these changes and this ever-growing uncertainty and open, closed, et cetera? Yeah, there's been a lot of changes and a lot of changed changes because everything does continually morph. Um, that is, I guess the pandemic is really good for people who are spontaneous and are more comfortable with uh, changes in structure and opportunities that just show up. People who are rigid <laughs> and who have to have a plan and have to have a schedule uh, and have to know what's coming, they're not going to do as well because really what we're doing to make sure everything unfolds both clinically for the hospital and for the curriculum, that is always based on things that require Safety is the primary concern because we don't want to pose any risk or put anyone at risk. So safety is always the biggest issue for our, our people. And then readjusting the programming. So um, for instance, from my office of uh, student programs, we had the summer is our bumper crop time for pathway programs from K through 12 and undergrad as well. We have lots of undergrad and um, pipeline programs for vet students and pre-vet students. Um, so we had to reconfigure all of those. Some we had to cancel altogether. Some we had to turn online. Um, it was just uh, it was just a, a whirlwind of what is our goal, what is our end game, what's our outcome, and then see how we can get there. So we had to do a lot of that this summer. And I spent many many hours pulling it off as well. Um, for the curriculum, Dr. Watson and her team in professional education here in the school have spent more hours than I can even imagine rethinking the process on how to safely educate the students. For a small time, this, we had no students in the clinic and that was a virtual rotation for the class of 2022, class of 2020 as they were ending. Um, we gave them some virtual experiences which were novel and it took uh, the realization on Friday that said we have to close the clinic and we have to retool the clinical experience for the students who are supposed to be on your rotations by Monday. So our faculty basically had three days to deal with a shutdown of senior students in the clinic and providing them with those outcomes that we still needed them to have to feel comfortable and to graduate um, within three days. So we built these online virtual rotations for clinical students. And um, I mean, I think we did a pretty good job. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know because it was novel and we never had done it before and who knows if we're gonna do it again. But that was sort of the complete closure of clinical activities. Um, then we reopened up to some clinics modified on June 8th. So the class of 2021, the current final year class, is in the clinic doing uh, in-person rotations. And some are hybrid rotations. Some are a blend between in-person and online. 
depends on the service and it depends on how the service wanted to build the safe learning environments that allowed to meet those goals. And remember, our, our curriculum is always built on learning objectives and outcomes. And when we map our activities to those learning objectives and the outcomes, then we can actually say, we are delivering what we want to deliver and what we know needs to be delivered. And that will be um, different because this is the world of different right now, but it is still mapped to the outcomes that we think we need to have that were in the old style, but now we just have to do it slightly differently. So that was quite a bit of a challenge for the clinic and that's still ongoing. And we're now in the process of um, rethinking how those have been going for the first say six weeks. And now we're retooling again to find out how we can open up a little bit more considering public health guidelines and the current states of those. Um, we're trying to figure out how to increase more student exposure in the clinic and try to lessen the amount of hybrid rotations. We're looking for more in-person experiences. So that's kind of how the clinical year has been changing and changing multiple times through the summer. For the current academic year for the preclinical students, years one through three, again, mapping to the learning outcomes and the objectives that the curriculum demands. Um, the, the, the professional education team had to really figure out how to deliver the content and do it safely. So we have hybrid rotation or hybrid clinics, hybrid experiences, hybrid classes, hybrid labs. Um, so it's not 100% remote. We have the larger lectures, of course, are going to be remote using Zoom. But anytime we need to do hands-on, small group, and more tight discussions, we will have different experiences here throughout campus so that we can still socially distance, do it well with our PPE, and make sure that it's safe for everybody, not just the students, but also our faculty and our staff. So um, that started a week ago Monday, and it's so far going pretty well. Um, of course, it's a big adjustment, and it's all new, so we're all on pins and needles to make sure that it goes well and there's no big hiccups. But the university for sure is behind us. We have five new tents that they put out around the vet school campus. Because um, currently, I think still, no one's ever gotten COVID from uh, aerosolized transmission in an outdoor setting. It's mostly indoors with bad ventilation. So we have now, I would call them canopies. They're basically tents without walls. And they're, some of them are pretty huge. Um, we now have five of, them, five of them around campus where we can actually hold small group sessions outside in these tents. Um, all the rooms that we have on campus have been rated for... Uh, ventilation and air exchanges and how many people can be in each of those spaces. So we know all of those data so we can actually have in-person events where we're wearing PPE and masks and those kind of things. But also uh, we can cluster a little bit more if we have better air exchanges. For instance, like in our anatomy lab has extremely good air exchanges. So we can put more than 10 people in there. I think we could put a quarter of the class in our anatomy lab wearing PPE. So they'll still get a lot of hands-on experience. And of course, when you're in a surgical experience, like our third year students, they're fully gowned and gloved. So they're in PPE. So they can also get about a quarter of the class in our surgical experiences. So we're adjusting in all these different ways to make sure that the content is still what the students need and the safety issue is still the highest priority. So it's been quite an adjustment, but I know what we're doing right now is gonna probably be rethought and retooled and it's gonna change a little bit every time we reevaluate it. But that's just the nature of um, rolling with the punches. And if we have, uh, say, a worse outbreak of COVID in the county, uh, we might have to backtrack on our plan and go back to more hybrid or no one in the hospital, no students in the hospital. You never know. Um, hopefully we just all do our part and we all try to squash this, this virus and no one gets it, which is pie in the sky thought. But um, if we have, uh, are able to open more, we for sure will. We're just waiting for that chance. But it's baby steps, I think, to get there. And it might be different versions of what we're doing now until we get to the old way, the pre-pandemic way of education.
And do you, do you guys sort of pull the students to find out how this is, what's working for them, what's not? Is it more a professor, academic staff feedback, or how do you guys determine what's working? I think that at the first, very first thing, when we, t when we tell the faculty, you need to retool your, or your rotation in three days to make it virtual. Like, of course, I think we left the students out of that. We have definitely uh, done a lot of discussions, especially Dr. Watson and I, with the presidents of each of the classes during the summer and finding out where they are, what they're doing, how they're feeling, what their vibe is from their class, what is the class worried about. We've had town halls throughout the summer with the classes as well to keep them informed of what we're doing and how we're doing it, get some of their feedback. And of course, when they're in the rotations or in the classes, um, every evaluation is reevaluated and looked at and making sure that the student perspective is taken into consideration. And then above and beyond that, sometimes our students, they don't wait for the evaluations. They get together and say, hey, Dr. Watson, or hey, Dr. Jandu, we have this concern. Here's some uh, things that we're thinking about. Can you be creative in this way? And this way, so we have uh, we have all sides of it. We we wait for the feedback. They give us the feedback before we ask for it. We try to keep them well informed, both from them and from them to us. Um, so we're really partnered with the students as well as the faculty to make sure that we can do as much as we can to like meet like meet those goals. And of course, there's certain goals we're not going to be able to meet. Like we. Part of our, our office, we do a lot of extracurricular programming for club events and other school-wide events where we have barbecues and picnics and can have nice social time. And of course, we have to shut that down and everyone understands that that's shut down pretty much for the whole fall semester. But where we can do things and where we can still pull off a good curriculum and meet those learning objectives. Um, we're doing the best we can right now, but like I said, we're probably rethinking it and gonna change it again, because this is basically, I think the new normal in the pandemic education realm is morphing and responding to changes. Hopefully they're all improvements back to normal as opposed to more of a shutdown kind of process, but we're kind of ready for all of those things. That's great to hear how you guys are responding and engaging with the staff and the students. One thing that seems that we've heard a lot during this pandemic timeframe is that there's such a level of uncertainty and so much is different and such a vast shift so quickly and so drastically that we're hearing that there's a lot, that a lot of people are very anxious just in the world, right? And, and I'm wondering if you're seeing that impact in your students with your staff, uh, if you're seeing sort of an increased um, need for mental health support. Actually, what's actually nice to know, and I'm, I'm surprised and I'm pleased at the same time as I've kept in touch with our primary mental health counselor, Dr. Ward, as uh, our psychologist employed by the school, we have 1.5 full-time equivalents. So we have Dr. Ward and another mental health counselor uh, I kept asking them basically every month, I'm like, how's it going? What do you need? Do you need extra resources? Because they had to switch to online counseling from in-person counseling. And um, how is it going? Are you guys overloaded? Are you underloaded? What's going on? They said, mm, we're okay. We're not seeing an uptick, which was really nice to hear. That was from basically March through last week. Um, so our students who may have not been in Davis may not have used those services on an, a typical basis. Normally they go, a lot of our students leave campus or leave Davis for the summer and they would not come to meet with our count, mental health counselors. But when they're all distant and all the counseling is done in a distant way, that opened up all of my students to have access to all of the counseling need, um, which was a, a shift from normal. But um, at that Despite that, um, we didn't see an uptick in the, the numbers of counseling hours needed for my students this summer. So that's good. I don't know about my staff or my faculty because um, that mental health counseling is done on the central campus, not through our student counselors here on our veterinary campus. Um, so I don't know about that, but I actually am pretty um, impressed, I think, by the resilience of our, our team as all. I'll, 
across the board from students to staff and faculty for sure. Um, because we're, I think we have a higher prize. We have a, a community goal instead of a personal goal. And I'm not saying that people aren't stressed or anxious or angry or all of the above. Um, they are. People are expressing it in different ways. But at least from the perspective of my mental health counselors, they did not have an uptick in my student need for mental health counseling. That's wonderful to hear. In some ways, like the going virtual for that support has, as you said, really opened it up so anybody can utilize it. For sure. I mean, we have 600 vet students, and now all 600 had equal access during the summer, as opposed to maybe a quarter of them are usually around, maybe maybe a third of them at most are around. Um, so, yeah, it was more access and more people having the access, but we didn't have to use it. So I was actually really, I was surprised as well. And I was really pleased. Wonderful. I'm thrilled to hear that. That's great news. I hope it's that it's the fact that the resilience of veterinarians are like, well, you know what? It's all about the community right now. It's not about me. And I got to take care of what needs to be taken care of. I mean, when I was on clinics for the majority of July, um, I had a, absolutely great time because 99% of our clients were super positive, super engaged, super thankful. And even if you have anxiety about taking care of clinical work, because we're there's hardly any way to socially distance in the emergency room. It's nearly impossible. We have a small space, we have a lot of people, and we've been really busy. So um, even if there was anxiety amongst my team, no one expressed it because they were still being given so many kudos from each other and from our clients that um, it might resolve some of that anxiety. Because I think people are super, our clients are super thankful that we're here doing what we're doing. Even though we're doing it differently, we're still getting the animal from the car in the parking lot, bringing it in the hospital, and <laughs> the owners are contacted through phone. They're not in the hospital unless it's really for a euthanasia. So um, our clients, despite that, are still super thankful. And I think part of that gratitude that they're showing is maybe, I don't know for sure, but they certainly make me feel good about doing what I'm doing because they're so help, so thankful and so verbally rewarding of, of me and my team during this time. That's wonderful to hear. There, you, you hear a lot of stories of how stressed and overwhelmed people are, and it seems that based on your sharing that if you really focus on being community driven and community focused, that you have that opportunity for a lot of positivity in the midst of these times. What is something that you're excited about in the veterinary profession? There's so many things. I think I, I'm always excited. I'm a pretty positive person to begin with. So uh, some of my students think I'm a golden retriever. Yeah, I'm kind of like that Gary Larson cartoon where my face is always the same, but the emotion that's underneath the header is is different. Um, I guess I kind of feel like that. Everything is pretty fascinating to me. I love what I do. I do what I love. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm a pig and shit. Um, if you are looking for what's happening in the future, I have no idea what the future is going to bring because anything I thought and planned out for my future is different. So um, I guess one thing I'd be excited for is for the next big thing, the next big opportunity. At least this weekend started the next big opportunity. There's a bunch of fires going around in the Northern California area, and there's some of them aren't too far from us. The next opportunity is going to take care of uh, another potential load of burn victims. Um, we have a lot of experience with dealing with burned animals from previous years' fires experiences. But now some of these fires are pretty close, and uh, I anticipate seeing some of those. And whenever we have fires and have a lot of fire victims, I can tell you that it's one of those things where the entire school pitches in because they're in it to win it, and they want to make the best out of the badness that can occur to these animals. So um, that's going to be different this year because we don't have as much ability to get as many people into the hospital to care for these animals. But we're just now getting poised to see if there's going to be an onslaught of animals that are going to be diverted to us or brought directly to us for um, the burn care. So these are unanticipated things that we have experience with that we're really good at. And to tell you the truth, 
there's nothing more exciting than seeing the entire school pull together to take care of animals that have suffered through a fire. Uh, every time this happens, the um, camaraderie, the giving, selflessly giving of their time and their talents um, is pretty amazing to watch. And it shows you the, the grace and the goodness of veterinarians. It's really powerful. So um, that might be happening pretty soon, depending on how bad these fires get and how many animals are affected. The other things we're thinking about how to grow and to keep advancing, we're always looking to expand our facility. And I think if we had any major, uh, I would say major hindrance to our curriculum right now, it's the physical facilities. Because if we had different, we had different facilities, we wouldn't need these tents and we would be able to reconfigure our, our teaching into different areas. So the veterinary medicine complex, the VMC campaign that we're trying to raise money for an expansion of the entire facility. Actually, I'm looking forward to that because that would, um, that would have helped in this pandemic to give us more space to do more uh, socially distanced teaching. We would have had bigger facilities and we could um, spread our people out because right now in our smaller facilities, it would pack people in. And that's one of the major limitations to really getting back to normal. So I'm excited about the growth of our facilities in the next five to 10 years. Also with my colleagues across campus um, at the medical school and the nursing school, I'm involved with the study that were uh, queried our students in the class of 2023. We're looking at many different aspects of their well-being and mental health. We, we surveyed them at the beginning of their year and at the end of the year. So we got some information in there about how they feel and how they respond to the pandemic and how that changed their um, comfort, their well-being and their approach to education. So some of these um, data were chewing on right now and from the data set we're probably going to get three or four different papers out that focus on different areas and one of the papers is already submitted one is in review and two are in construction right now so that's something i'm really excited about because it's a global um, health professions approach to looking at our students and what we can do to help them be more successful in their current state as well as to build programming so that we can address any of the issues in future uh, programs out of my office. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's some of the research that I'm currently involved in. I'm hopeful for the world to pull together to flatten the curve and make this a safe place again. For me personally, I'm looking forward to getting home today and figuring out what nice meal I'm going to cook and what nice wine I'll pair with it. You've been so generous with your time and I really appreciate you sharing your story and sharing so much information with us. Do you have a secret talent? And it might not be a talent, but something that you enjoy doing that not everybody might know. Well, I think I'm, I'm pretty much an open book. I think my students know that I have a fascination for chocolate, for good wine, and for boba. A hidden talent. Actually, I used to be a musician long ago before vet school. I was quite the musician. I played saxophone and jazz band, drums and marching band. I did all the percussion and symphonic band. My professional career has put a big damper on that. And I can tell you, I, I know my students very, very well because I read nearly every word of every application. Veterinarians have a lot of secret talents. They're extremely accomplished like in this brand new class alone we have like ballet dancers uh, navy seals um, people who've been on stage um, i mean the the list of like artistic talent is pretty amazing not just they're smart people but there's a lot a lot a lot of secret hidden talents amongst veterinarians in general so we're an impressive bunch. I would have to say veterinarians um, sell themselves short. They don't toot their own horn very much. There's the salt of the earth kind of people. But when you ask them a little bit more deeply, 
they're always impressive. I got to tell you that. I have definitely found that. I am I'm not a veterinarian. It's been fascinating to me to learn. And I'm consistently impressed with veterinary colleagues and veterinarians and veterinary students. And that's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is just learning the different stories that people have because they're all so fascinating and very inspiring. Yeah, well, if there's something that we didn't dive deeper into, we can uh, revisit another time. I'm always happy to come back and chat with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time, Carl. I really appreciate your time and your effort. And I know that you're extremely busy and we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. So thank you. No problem, Jordan. Anytime. I had a nice time with you. Wonderful. Take care. You have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.